So today we consider the name which is above every name, the name at which every knee on heaven and earth will bow. One day we will bow the knee together with all creation to this name. And remember, we quoted this verse last week as well, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the name by which we must be saved. We sing great hymns about this. Your hymnal is chock full of references to praising the name of Jesus. His name, like sweet perfume, shall rise. All hail the power of Jesus' name. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. So the angel is clear. The angel is clear to Joseph. The angel is clear to Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, which, by way of reminder, is the Greek variant of Joshua. So the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. And they are to thus call him that name, that name in particular, because that's what he's going to do. He's going to save, and that way, as a person who saves, as the one who saves, it is appropriate that we can also translate the name Jesus as the word Savior. Jesus, at this point, uh, was a common name. It was a personal name that people used. I, I pointed out when we were in the book of Joshua, I guess it was about a year ago now, uh, that when Joshua, when Joshua was given that name, every time you address Joshua, we think of that as just a name. We, we don't associate necessarily anything with it. But I pointed out at that time that every time you said the word Joshua or thought about Joshua, it was a name that while referencing a particular person immediately deflected you to something else. In other words, you, you, you weren't supposed to get confused that Joshua himself, Joshua son of Nun, in the Old Testament, that he was the Savior, because his very name meant the Lord is salvation. So his name pointed away from himself to the work that God was doing. Jesus now comes, and in this day and age, by that point, we've got plenty of archaeological records, historical records, that this is now a common name, that there are many people who are named Jesus. And yet it is this name that the angel instructs to be given to our Lord and Savior. So we have Jesus being given this personal name, a name that is common. Last week we looked at Christ. Christ was a title that not anybody, no one else had the title of Christ. You, you didn't walk around and name your child the Christ. You might walk around and name your child Jesus, but not the Christ. And what we have in Jesus is the fusing of two things, the person and the office, the person and the work which he will do. So today, what I want to look at as we consider this idea of the name is why the name? Why the name Savior? And who is this one who saves? That's question number one. Secondly, whom does he save? Third, from what does he save? And then finally, how does he save? So we begin this question with why this name? Why is Savior the name that is given to the second person of the Trinity? Why Jesus? Well, in order to get a good handle of this, I don't want you to turn to this right now, but perhaps in your family devotions or reflections on the sermon, 
later this afternoon you would turn to this. In order to get a handle on this, we kind of have to go back in time. We have to go back to the book of Exodus in particular. You could look at Exodus chapter 4, the burning bush. You could look at Exodus chapter 6 as well to get a sense of this. We've got to think back to the significance of God revealing his name, of him telling his name and the significance of his name to Moses. So he reveals himself to Moses. Moses wants to know, who should I say is sending me? Who should I say is going to deliver? Who should I say has given me this particular instruction? And thus God gives the name. I am who I am. Now, we say that in various ways. Some of us say Jehovah. Some of us say Yahweh. Some say Yahweh. All the same conception of this name that God has given. I am who I am. And as God gives that name to Moses, several things are happening at exactly the same time. It is an act, the giving of that name and the name in of itself, of in the first place, revelation. God is uncovering himself to the person of Moses and through Moses to the Israelites as well. He's revealing something of who he is. In the context, it is not only a work, an act of revelation that God is doing, it is also an act of redemption that God is doing. God has promised to Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of bondage. How do you know that? Let me tell you my name. So his name is associated and inseparable from the promise that he has made to redeem his people. So it's, it's a sign and an assurance of his covenant. This is my covenant name. You should know this name and you can trust this name for your redemption. So it is an act of revelation. It is an act of redemption, this giving of the name. And finally, it is also an act of relation. And what I mean by that is when names are exchanged, relationships become personalized. Distance is reduced. And, and all of us are familiar with this. I think it, it, we've brought it up at various points along the way over the course of the years. This is true in our culture as well, in our day and age. If you refer to someone by title, maybe their title and their name, you are, you, you've got a distance between you and that person. And the most common example for us is the use of Mr. and Mrs. So when children give a title or a, a, an, an honorific uh, to a name, what they're, what they're doing is recognizing that a distance exists between me and you. And therefore, I call you Mr. This or Miss, Mrs. That. But as children get older, what they might hear from an adult is, listen, you know, you're, you're over 18 now. You're in the adult world. You're, you're, you're no longer, you don't have to call me Mr. anymore. You don't have to call me Mr. Huber or uh, Mrs. Huber. You can now call me Eric or Lauren. And when that take place, takes place, something significant happens. It's a shift in the relationship. It's a, it's a recognition that there's a greater intimacy, a greater closeness that can now exist between us because you know my name. And so as God reveals his name, it is an act of redemption, but it is also this relationship that is being secured, that is being established 
and personalized through the exchange of names. And it works both ways. So the reason I had us read that uh, Isaiah passage earlier in the service, if you caught it in the very first verse, he says, I have called you by name. So not only does God allow us to address him personally, but he addresses us personally as well. He says, I, I've called you by your name, and you are mine. Now let's, let's be clear. When God says here, I've called you by name, and you are mine, he's not only referring to the double ownership which he has of us. He has a double ownership of his people, the ownership of creating them and the ownership of redeeming his people. But he's, he's saying something more than simply, you're mine, you're my possession, you belong to me. What he's in fact doing when, when he's saying, I have called you by name, is he's, he's declaring his love. He's declaring the relationship that he has. Verse 4 makes that clear of Isaiah 43. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I love you. That's why I know your name. That's why you know my name. That's why we exchange names. And if you, if you move down further in the Isaiah 43 passage, it has the idea of being called, us being called by the name of the Lord. And so to declare the name of the Son of God to be Jesus, if we set these two things next to one another now, is revelatory. It's revelatory. It begins to reveal to us who he is. It's redemptive because we see that it's attached to the promises of what he is going to do in delivering his people. It is those things, and, and as such, he is the Savior. He is the one who will save from sin. He is the, the, the one who is appropriate to say of Isaiah 43, 3, says it this way, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's who I am. And in naming Jesus, naming the Son Jesus, that's what's being declared of him. It is the honorific that belongs to him. He is the Savior. And so we must confess those things. In order to be saved, we must confess him to be those things, to be the one who is the Savior. In Acts, Peter says to them, for the Lord has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Christ. So the man who bears this name is the one who has these titles as well, Lord and Christ. So it is a high office, this title that he has of Savior. But in addition to it being revelatory and redemptive, just like we saw with Moses, it is also profoundly relational, which is to say it is personal. That is why we say that we have Jesus as a personal savior. Salvation is not found by accepting a moral code or a bare teaching. Salvation is not had by us even by accepting some kind of distant potentate as the ruler of the universe. But instead for us, salvation is found in the person and the name 
of Jesus. And this is why he can say, or, or John can say of him in John chapter 1, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Which leads us to the second question, whom does he save? And our text gives an answer to this question. If we ask the question, whom does he save? The text says for us, he will save his people. And of course, the answer that you immediately ask, if you say, okay, the Lord will save his people, is what does that mean? Who are, in fact, his people? Well, we need to answer this in a couple of ways. First of all, who are his people? They are people like Mary and people like Joseph. Or if we want to keep ourselves within the stories of the birth, think of Simeon in Luke chapter 2. They are people like Mary, like Joseph, like Simeon. Simeon, who is described by Luke as a righteous and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Who are his people? People like Simeon. He was a Jewish man who was looking for a Jewish savior. That's one of his people. They're faithful Jews who are looking for Messiah. And that's why, again, to go back to John chapter 1, we can read, he came to his own. That's who he came to. He came to his people, to Israel, waiting for her consolation. That's the first point. That's the first answer to whom does he save? His people, the people of Israel. But secondly, it is immediately, it, it is immediately both prophetically expected and within these texts as well, evident to us that if Jesus were to be a savior only for Israel, only for the faithful remnant of Israel, that would in fact be too small of a thing. It would not be enough for the office that he bears. And that is why we read, for example, Simeon says of him, he declares that not only is this child Jesus to be a glory to your people Israel, but he is also a light of revelation to the Gentiles. The angels, when they came, they sang, behold, we bring, or, we bring you great news of great joy, which will be for all the peoples, not just for the Jews, but for all of the peoples. And, and the apostle John declares him to be the savior of the world. So when we say his people, in the first place, we should understand that that is believing, faithful, and expectant Israelites. In the second place, that in and of itself would be too small of a thing. He is the savior of the world. And so his people can comprise people in the world as well. But having said that, we now need to make a little bit of a clarification, lest that be misunderstood. We should understand that while salvation is universal, belonging to all the peoples of the world, that is not the same thing as talking about universalism. Universalism is the idea that everyone will be saved because Jesus saves the whole world. And it's a heresy that creeps in and out of the church at various points from various 
uh, sources, oftentimes from within the church as well. People read these things and they, they find the idea of hell to be distasteful, the idea of the wrath of God and punishment of sin to be too much to bear, and it seems nicer to say of God that he saves everyone. But in fact, of course, biblically speaking, that is not the case. Salvation is for those, and we've already quoted the verse, so I'm not going to quote it again. It is for those who believe in his name, for those who receive him. There is a requirement for salvation for all people. You have to believe in the name. You have to receive the one who bears that name in particular. You have to confess his name. Fourthly, there's one last thing that we need to say about this idea of his people. Those who are saved, those who through confession and belief acknowledge Jesus to be the savior of the world are in fact those whom the father has given to the son. So you're sitting here, we're sitting here as people from all different walks of life around the world 2,000 years later as people who are confessing that name. Why are we doing that? The temptation is always for us subtly to think because we made a good choice, because we were wise, we heard this message, and we were ones who heard it and understood the good news and received it. The answer, that's not the answer to this. Why do you believe? The answer is because your father, the heavenly father, gave your name to the son. And through the spirit said, go and get that one. This name in particular, those who are chosen, who are elected, who are foreordained by God to salvation, who are given to the son. Those are the ones in particular who are his people. It is according to his sovereign will, and as was in our prayer this morning, as is sprinkled throughout the scriptures, including the passages that we've read already, salvation is of the Lord. It is of his will, not of the will of man. And it leads to the next question then. From what does he save? Now, if we could ask a first century Hebrew, if we could grab someone off of the street, a first century Hebrew, and say to them, listen, the Messiah is promised, the Messiah is coming, the one who is the savior of the world, from what will he save Israel? How, how would that question be answered? What is, what is Messiah's work? If he's the savior, what is he saving? What's he saving us from? I think I think that the answer in the first place would have been, oh, he's, he's saving us from Roman oppression, from captivity that we are experiencing. He's saving us from national obscurity and irrelevance. He's saving us from injustice. He's saving us from oppression. The Savior is going to restore our place in the world, our significance as a people in the world. And they might say to us, the Savior is going to be like Moses. The Savior is going to take us out of our bondage. It was Egypt then, it's Rome now. The Savior is going to be like Moses. The Savior is going to be like Joshua. 
The Savior is going to reestablish our land, give us this land that God has promised us for such a long time now. The Savior is going to be like David. The Savior is going to reign and rule over us for eternity in this particular place. Now that's probably what I think they would have said if you talked about it on a national level. What will the, the Savior save Israel from, from and unto? But if you said to them, okay, let's talk more personally. How does this apply to you personally? What do you think will be the effect for you of this? Well, perhaps they would have said something like, and my, and my personal property will be restored. My dignity and my worth will be restored. I'll be, I'll be saved from, from the, the poverty that I seem to be experiencing now. I'll be saved from the, the illness that, that, is, that is endemic in my family right now. I'll be saved from those things. And perhaps they would have gotten around to this idea of I'll be saved from my sin at some point. But I don't think it would have been the first thing that was said by most of them. Some would have, but I don't think it would have been the first thing. So if you ask someone on the streets right now, from what do you need saving? What would the answer to that question be? Kevin DeYoung writes that we might look for salvation from uh, low self-esteem, salvation from singleness, salvation from crummy jobs and lack of opportunity. But if we look to Jesus to save us from these things, then we miss the point. We would be guilty of failing to properly identify the enemy, the true and the ultimate enemy. The enemy from which we need saving is more nefarious than any of the things that I have mentioned thus far. The enemy from which we need saving is the unholy triumvirate of sin and of death and of Satan. Left to ourselves, and this is how we ought to understand the things in the Old Testament, left to ourselves, we are in fact willing captives who have become not only willing captives, but faithful soldiers in a wicked kingdom that is arrayed against this child Jesus. That's who we are in and of ourselves. That is our natural state. That is that from which we need saving. But we would list probably a lot of things before we would get to that point and identify ourselves in that way. He did not come to get us a better job. He came to deliver us. He came to wrest us from the dominion of darkness, from the guilt and the punishment of sin that would rightly be leveled against us were we to remain under the tyranny of the devil. In other words, he came to set us free. He came to set us free from that bondage which we were so willingly a part of. The birth of this child is the beginning of a final battle of a great war, and that is why 
from the very early moments of his birth, we see a commitment to kill that child. That is why Herod wants to know, where is this one? That is the nature of opposition to the Son of God. It is simply made clear in the story of Herod. Jesus saves us from nothing less than sin and from death and from Satan and bondage to those things. And eventually, he saves us from all of the begotten misery of that triumvirate. Finally, a question then, how does he save? Now here, in answer to this question, how does he save? We could speak of his life, we could speak of his death and resurrection, of his ascension to be seated at the right hand of his father. But if you will allow me, I'm going to restrict the idea of how does he save to what we see in the story, particularly here for Matthew and of the other stories of his birth. The Son of God saves by becoming Emmanuel. That's how he saves. By being Jesus, by being incarnate, by being enfleshed. He saves by being born of Mary, by being willing to be counted the son of Joseph. Jesus saves by becoming a man and by drawing near to us. In our uh, confession earlier, uh, and this was obviously done intentionally, Isaiah chapter 59, it talks about the fact that sin has made a separation between you and your God. How does Jesus save? Jesus saves by overcoming that separation by his downcoming down to be in the womb, down to be born in the stable, down to be laid in a feeding trough. That is how he saves. He did not save by heavenly pronouncements. He did not save by passing along salvific advice to people. a time of year when many of us are giving extra to the church, to various organizations. Jesus did not save by making a donation. He did not save by writing a check. He did not save by deputizing angels and equipping them with all of the weapons that they would have needed to go into this world to defeat Satan and his host while he himself remained in the glories of heaven. He did not save by overflying disaster-stricken humanity and dropping down parcels of things that we need. He did not save by entering into this world as a conquering king in full regalia with the hosts of heaven at his left and at his right. He saved, and he saves through humility. 
through the taking on of flesh. John writes, the Apostle John writes, if you wish to be saved, you must acknowledge, you must confess, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You must confess God come in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh. There's no other way to be saved. And there's no way you can make that statement without the Spirit of God at work in your heart. There's no way you can make that statement without being one of the ones that the Father has given to the Son. We must confess Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Augustine put it this way, that men might be born of God. God was first born of men. Jesus saves from sin by drawing near. Jesus saves from sin and death and Satan all those who call upon his name by drawing near to them. And therefore, in his name and on his behalf, I say to you, he is not far. Call on that name and you will be saved. For that is why he came. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Jesus is our Emmanuel. His name is the sweetest. Let's pray. Sweet is your name, Lord Jesus. Sweet unto us. For some, it is the smell of death. For those who by your grace have called upon you, it is sweetness. Jesus, we pray that you would help us now to do that which we will do for eternity. Delight in you. Rejoice in you. Rejoice in your entry into this world to save us from our sins. Jesus, you are sweet. And we pray for ourselves and we pray for each one of us who are here. We pray that we would find you to be exactly that. Thank you, precious Savior, that you love us. And we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.